following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. We are so glad that you are here, that we can be together and worship our God together. He is worthy, isn't he? And we're glad for the freedoms that we have that have been some abridged in these last months, but we have made the best of it, and we're going to keep exercising our freedom to worship God. That is, uh, actually, you know, it's not, um, it's not ultimately constitutionally given to us. You understand? God has commanded us to worship Him. He is the King. He is the Lord. And so we have recognized that as a nation in our social contract with one another and what we call the Constitution, uh, as we ought to have. But uh, that document and the freedoms that we hold dear have been defended by those who have given their lives. And that's what we remember on Memorial Day, isn't it? Uh, Veterans Day in November, that is for those who, are, uh, who have served uh, their country, who have who are living, perhaps, or even those in the past who served, uh, who did not die in battle or in service directly, but tomorrow, especially for those who have given their lives. And so we remember them with gratefulness uh, today on this uh, weekend in which we mark that every year. Isaiah 54, please, this morning. Our scripture reading is found in the 54th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 54. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. What is he talking about there? This is not talking about an individual woman. He's talking about the nation who, although is having at this time great difficulties in their existence, there will be a future rendition of that nation who will be very fruitful. In fact, the Lord says this to prepare them. Verse 2, Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left. And your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. You get the picture there? He's saying, go ahead and build your seven-bedroom house because you're going to need it. That's how fruitful the nation will be. Expand your tent, he's saying. Verse 4, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you. But with great mercies, I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. 
For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. May I encourage you, my friends, that that is literally true. Israel is still going to experience the kindness and grace and mercy of God. They have not been demoted, punished, replaced, thrown away. Indeed, if they were, the promise of God would be null and void, and we know that cannot be the case. Verse 11, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord." You notice a lot of voices, a lot of tongues rising against Israel in judgment, even today, because of the historical and future connection of the current nation with that which came in the past and that which will come in the future. Very interesting how that works out. We'll talk more about that another time, I'm sure. If you'd open your Bibles and turn, please, to the book of Titus. I'd like to draw your attention there for the next number of weeks that we have together in the will of God. Titus, go to the end of your New Testament if you're not familiar with where that is. And if you find First and Second Timothy, you will find Titus right after that. And if you get to Philemon and Hebrews, you've gone just a little bit too far. I realized when I looked at my, uh, my ministry planning uh, notes that I have kept over the years that I have preached, as I mentioned, through each book, almost, almost every book of the New Testament now. Uh, the, the Gospels need a little bit more work here. I'm working through Matthew, and we'll get to the other ones as time permits. We've preached through John and Mark as well. But... Um, I realize that uh, two books need a little bit further attention. One of those is Philippians, and the other is the book of Titus. I last preached through Titus, I want to say on Wednesday nights, but I, that may not be the case, uh, in 2005. Can you believe it? So uh, over 16 years ago, we began a series in the book of Titus, and I was not as well equipped to uh, go through a series like that then as I am now, so I hope that will improve the uh, material that we share with you and, uh, and with others uh, through the church website ministry. 
Yes. All right. So that's uh, that's Titus. Now let me give a note here, just about using my notes. Um, some of you, a few are new, uh, and maybe those that are online. I just thought I'd give you an example. Like if you turn to page three on the notes, turn to page three at the bottom. You see letter C there, and I say his hope, uh, which is parallel with. Paul's purpose, his purpose, letter B on page 2, and his call on page 1. Um, but if you read this just by itself, you're going to miss something. And so I thought I'd just comment on it. I, see, I say here his hope. This is the encouraging end point of Paul's work. It serves to drive him forward in the apostolic mission and so on. What you have to do, and the way that I intend this to be used often, is to, I don't put the verses here. Now, I did last week with the Lord's Prayer because it was a short section and I just put in little kind of highlight boxes each little segment of the prayer, but I don't often do that. So really what I intend is that you have your notes open here and your Bible open here, which is how I preach, so that you can see both of them. And since I say his hope is in verse 2, I intend for you to read verse 2, in a hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. This is the encouraging endpoint of Paul's work. In other words, read the verse and then read my comments or teaching on it so that you get the whole thing. Otherwise, the, the, the it and the pre, you know, there's no antecedent to the pronoun and all of that. Well, it is there. It's just you have to work with the scriptures and the notes to make it work uh, just properly. So I hope that will be helpful to you as you use the notes uh, now and in the future. Uh, we're meant to be a Bible-centered church because it's God's word that matters, not my word. Uh, these are only meant to be an aid to get you into God's word and help you understand it. As, uh, as the Ethiopian eunuch said, uh, of whom does this man speak in Acts chapter 8? And Philip came alongside him and said, well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. I will help you understand uh, the uh, the text there in Isaiah 53. And so similarly, if you ask, well, what, does, what is he saying here in Titus 1, verses 1 to 4? Well, let me come alongside, step up into your chariot, and share with you a little bit of my of fruit and my study as I've thought about this passage. We're in the introductory verses of this uh, book today, um, and the function of them is simple. It is to give the greetings to introduce the letter to this man named Titus from the Apostle Paul. It's the greeting section of the letter. It's a standard greeting. It has three parts. It says who it's from, who it's to, and then gives a word of greeting to them. And most New Testament letters are laid out this way. It's very simple. Uh, follows the typical Greek style, which is different than our style, isn't it? Sometimes you get a letter in the mail, and it has the to at the top, and it starts with some greetings, and then you don't find out who it's from until you read sincerely at the end in the name. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, actually. Why would you put the from last? It's, that's like one of the most important things. So uh, that's how, this is how letters were laid out in, in the time of the uh, New Testament era. Now, uh, so if you open the mail, for, for example, just to use that phrase, you'd look at the first few lines and say, oh, this letter is for Paul. It's from Paul to Titus. Not for me. Put it back in. Put it back in the mailbox. You know, um, but actually, in this case, it's meant to be read to the church as well. So we're 
we're really experiencing here an open letter, specifically between two people, but it has applicability to the church forward uh, for now 2,000 years. Now, you might think that you can read these verses and skip over them. Well, it's just the introduction. I mean, let me get to the real meat of the thing here. I'll get to verse 5 and I'll start paying more close attention. Don't make that mistake. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And this text has some significant theological statements that, well, on the one hand, will lay groundwork for what's to come in the rest of the letter. But on the other hand, on their own right, they are impactful, powerful statements. I think you'll see that. Even the one that I read there in verse number two, I'm hoping that you'll grasp onto that, that word of hope of eternal life that Paul gives to us. Now, this is a fairly elaborate introduction. It could just say, Paul to Titus, hello, but it doesn't say that. There's more to it than that, and that's why we have to spend a few moments looking at it together this morning. This information is placed early in the letter, indicating something of its importance to the Apostle Paul. This is not just placed here because he doesn't have anywhere else to put it, so I'll just stick it in the introductory matters uh, of the letter. No, these are, are, are characterizations of a man who is writing to Timothy, or Titus rather, and Titus characterizing him as a believer, and it tells us about things that are important in Paul's ministry, and that in turn, should be important to us, very important to us. So we begin trusting the Lord to help us in our study in Titus with the from section, Roman numeral one at the bottom of page one. I'm turning my notes to the second page. Paul is giving us a word about his calling as a servant of God. And he says this, Paul a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. A bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this title is interesting because there are only three people in Scripture that, are, um, that have this moniker, if you will, that have this title. Now, there are variations on this title of servant or bondservant of God. Some translations perhaps have slave of God. But only three people in the Bible, Moses, Paul, and James have this very same title, bondservant or slaves of God. Other times Paul mentions himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and other apostles do the same. Obviously, the title of servant is meant to convey the humble status of the person who is the servant He's doing the serving. He's doing the slaving. You know, he's an unprofitable servant. Luke's gospel reminds us that we're all that, and we should have that humble attitude before God. But what is often overlooked is that the servant of the highest being that exists has himself a very exalted position. What a privilege it is to serve the King of Kings. You're just not the servant of some low person on the totem pole. You're the servant of the Most High God. And as servant of the Most High God, that comes with some kind of authority, some kind of privileges, especially the Apostle Paul, as we'll see in just a moment. But 
Paul also not only saw himself in that humble estate of being a servant, that exalted estate of being the servant of God, but also I think we have to understand that he sees himself in this slavery relationship as one who has been transferred out of enslavement to sin and in to enslavement to Christ. And really, there is no middle ground, my friends. You can't, you can't say, well, I'd like to escape the slavery to sin. Thank you for saving me, Lord. You can't say Lord without acknowledging that he is your master, that he is your not only Savior, but also your, your boss, if you will. So there's no real middle ground. All Christians are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you need me to justify that statement? Why, I will be happy to do so. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 6, talking about servants being obedient to those who are their masters, not with eye service as men pleasers, but... Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. He's speaking to all believers here, especially in this context, those who happen to be in a bond service relationship with the master in the first century Roman culture. But still, he's saying you're bondservants of Christ, not bondservants of men, not bondservants of people. And so, as a Christian, when you become rescued from your sin, you change from being a servant to sin to being a servant of God. You are now a servant not of unrighteousness, but you use your instruments, Romans 6 tells us, as servants of righteousness. And this idea is going to come out further on in verse number 1, and something that I want to encourage you to think about today, about the whole matter of godliness and of being a servant of God. Secondly, Paul is called not only as a servant, but notice the text says, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle, I could spend a long time speaking about this, but we'll just say a couple of things about it. Number one, it's a special commission from the Lord of a person that saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that was explicitly commissioned by him to serve as a personal representative, as a personal representative. Paul was called by Christ and sent by Christ to do a particular job. And we're going to see what that job is just now. Paul's going to tell us what his job description really is all about. And along with that came derived authority. So, for example, Paul could say to the Thessalonians, the things that I command you, or the Corinthians, the things that I command you are the commands of Christ. He's a, he's a personal representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes this gets lost. We kind of think of Paul as a pastor, which he sort of is, but he's more than that. And so when you see uh, things like Paul appointing elders in the churches in Acts chapter eight, uh, 14 or instructing Timothy and Titus to do the same, you often think, well, does that mean that, you know, like me, I appoint pastors in other churches? I'm, I'm a pastor just like Paul, right? No, I'm not an apostle. That's the difference. He had the job of initially establishing the churches and getting this whole ball rolling, if you will, until the normal operation of the church became uh, in effect, which includes the church participating in the call of its pastors. An apostle of Jesus Christ. That comes with great 
derived authority and with huge responsibility that the Apostle Paul had. So we have Paul's calling, bondservant and apostle. Secondly, we have his purpose, his purpose. Let's read the text and then think about it. It says, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, this is a little bit of a uh, brain bender, I'll say, because if you look at this, you, you want to understand what, what's the relationship of Paul to the faith and the acknowledgement of the truth and all of that. If you have another translation, it may give you a better uh, rendition, I think, than the New King James does here in this particular place. The word that uh, is at issue is the word according to. Do you have according to there, or maybe for the sake of? What, what do you have in that section there, in that spot? Pay attention to that word, for the sake of. What do you have, Dee? After. after, yeah, after, which is similar to according to. Let me help you understand. This word uh, uh, kata is what it comes from, is from a, a word that's used in Greek hundreds of times many hundreds of times. And often when you have a word that's used that many times, it has different nuances of meaning. It's like we use the word by or for or of. I mean, all the time, we don't even think about it, but it has different nuances of meaning to it. And that's the case with this word. And as I studied this and compared, <coughs> sorry, compared the uh, dictionary uh, that we use, the standard Greek dictionary, with a number of other sources and translations, It seems to me that the best translation is for the sake of, for the sake of. Um, It's used actually the same word twice in this verse and once in verse 3, another time in verse 4. But it means for or with a goal or intention or purpose. So Paul has been called by God a bondservant and an apostle, and here is my job description, he's going to say. Here's my ministry description. What am I all about? What is my aim in life in this job, can I call it? It's not a job, it's a ministry. But in this position of of authority, of teaching, of personal representation of Christ, what am I all about? Three things. Number one, the faith of God's elect. Number two, their knowledge of the truth. And number three, godliness. Now, it might take you a minute to untangle those, but I hope you can see where I've got those three points from. They're right from the the verse. Paul is saying, I have been called as an apostle for this purpose, to bring the elect to faith, to bring them to know the truth, and to bring them to godliness. Okay? Let's dig into that just a little bit more. It's worth our time to think about. The phrase, the faith of God's elect here, means faith exercised by God's chosen ones, God's elect. Election is that somewhat troublesome term to some people. It doesn't bother me at all. I've I've grown past that troubled... uh, state of thinking that I can figure out how God chooses and why and 
and all of those things and, and, and submitted myself to the total control and sovereignty of God over all things. He's in charge. God, the judge of all the earth, always does right. When we come to life and, and to Christianity with that estimation of God, we will be in much better shape than if we come like, well, God, why did you do... God, didn't you... Could, why didn't you do it this way? <laughs> yeah, this is, the, this is the clay speaking to the potter. Saying, God, make me a little different than you did. Or, you know, work this out a little bit different. So I don't have any trouble with that. And I hope you will come to that point in your own heart as well. But the faith of God's elect. Election is a theological term that means that God chose all believers before the foundation of the world, based on no merit in themselves, to salvation in Christ with all of the blessings and obligations of it. Okay, It's a very expansive term. And we're going to see what that entails from the Apostle Paul's perspective here just now. So, there are a group of elect or chosen ones according to the Scripture. This uh, term is used many uh, places in the Bible this way. We looked at this uh, actually a few weeks ago when we looked at the Book of Life, remember? So we don't have to go over all of that again here in this setting. But the purpose of the Apostles' work was this. Let me uh, read in the book of Acts and uh, chapter 26. In chapter 26, verse 14. The Bible says here, Paul giving his testimony of what happened to him when he initially got called as a servant and as an apostle. It says, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me. This was on the road to Damascus, you'll remember saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Here's his purpose to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Then he says this, Therefore, he's addressing King Agrippa in this defense, this testimony, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I went about doing that which God told me to do. So he declared first, to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. That's what Paul's mission was all about. I'm trying to help us to understand that our mission should be similar to this. Now, the concept of those who are elect includes this key concept from Acts 18. And I won't turn there, but you might be familiar with the passage where Paul is ministering in Corinth and he's having some trouble there. And, and God, uh, the Lord appears to Paul in a vision and says to him, look, just stay here, keep ministering. Why? Because I have many people in this city. The concept of these chosen ones includes the idea that we have to find those people. 
we trust that not all who will exercise saving faith have yet done so. There are some people out in that town that I'm gesturing to right now, 115,000 souls who have not yet come to faith in Christ, but they shall. They shall do so. As many as have been appointed by God to eternal life, earlier in Acts tells us, believed the gospel. Now, hear this. We have to do the work that is necessary to bring them to Christ. Hear this again. It's not enough that someone is elect. Okay? Some people have this idea that just enough that, it's, that they're elect, they'll figure it out. God also requires that the means he has elected are used appropriately. What means are those? We're about to see them here, but the means include the preaching of the gospel. Remember, I said election has to do with the, uh, the, the salvation of those who are chosen by God, along with its blessings and its what? Obligations. Those obligations are not just laid upon me in my own personal walk with Christ. They also are laid upon me for person X out there that I am supposed to share the gospel with. That's an obligation of the doctrine of election. A person who is elect before they have trusted in Christ is is no different than the non-elect insofar as our human view is concerned. In fact, the divine pronouncement upon such people is that they are under the wrath of God before they come to faith. And children of wrath, listen in Ephesians 2.3, you were children of wrath even as, that means in the same way, precisely the same way as the others. Very important to get that comparison right. Those people exist presently in a state of distance from God, of no fellowship with God, just like all the rest of humanity all about us who don't know the Lord. So Paul's purpose, number one, I live, I exist, I've been called to bring the elect to faith. Whoever they are, I don't know who they are, okay? They don't have a label on them that tells me, okay? That's why I said that's God's business, not our business. Remember, I keep saying that. Yeah, we, we preach the gospel profusely and hopefully People will come and come and come. Number two, Paul's purpose is to bring people not only to the, to the faith, but to the knowledge of the truth. This is the larger body of Christian truth than the gospel. Okay? There's a tendency today, I call it a reductionist tendency among American evangelicals to try to whittle the gospel down to a bare minimum, just enough to interest somebody who doesn't believe and not enough to offend them, to bring them along to believe the gospel. And then once they do, then you're like, whew, good deal. Now I can move on to somebody else. And churches, whole churches exist, which exist to have meetings like this where the gospel is preached over and over and over again. And people may come to faith, but they don't come to what? Step two, which is the knowledge of the truth. So they live in a 
permanently immature state as Christians. That's not what we want at Fellowship Bible Church. That's why you have to put your thinking cap on when you come here to follow along and pay attention to the ministry of the Word. The, the, the Great Commission tells us not only to make disciples and baptize them, but to do what? Teach them to observe everything that the Lord has commanded. That is huge. That is a huge task. Having faith is not the end of the Christian project. We have to understand what we believe. We have to understand why we believe it. We have to understand its implications. This then in turn leads to the third part of Paul's goal, not only to bring you to faith and to bring you to a knowledge of the truth, a full knowledge of the truth, but also, what does he say? Which accords with godliness. And this is a heavy emphasis in the book of Titus. Paul says later on in Titus, I want you to remind them to be careful to do good works, to do godly things. The idea that Protestant Christianity is all about uh, forensic justification, that is being declared righteous before God and not having anything else attached to that, is a false caricature of the true faith. Okay? The Bible tells us that believers in Christ are forensically justified. That is, they've received the full righteousness of Christ on their account. And if they have nothing else, they will be welcomed into heaven. But when God leaves us here, he thus signifies that that justification is not all that he wants for us to experience. He also wants us to experience what we call imparted righteousness, that our lives will match what the Lord Jesus' life looked like while he was on the earth, a righteous life. So don't let anybody tell you you have a half-baked salvation. Paul dealt with this, didn't he? He said, you know, shall we do evil that good may come? You know, the more sin we do, the more grace that God can display. He said, that is a bunch of nonsense. God forbid that kind of thinking. That's not how we think at all. True salvation is you come to faith. The elect come to faith. They know the truth, and then they behave the truth. The, 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 the truth that is in accord with godliness. This is the godly living kind of truth. Right thinking should lead us to right living. Wrong thinking leads us to wrong living. As a man thinks in his heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul's whole purpose in life was to further God's work so that people would know the truth and this truth would produce in them godliness. Not just to get people saved, but to get them holy. So, yes, our church is made up of people who have been and are sinners, but we should be coming more holy all the time. We should not, we're never going to be sinless until heaven, but we should be sinning less and less and less all along the way. Now, Paul goes on and he says, okay, the faith of God's elect, number one. Number two, acknowledgement of the truth. Number three, godliness. That's his goal. And then he says this in verse two, in hope of eternal life, in hope of eternal life. This is the encouraging endpoint of Paul's work. 
it serves to drive him forward in the apostolic mission. He's not just talking about faith and godliness and all just for the sake of faith and godliness. No, he's talking about this with the end in mind of the hope of eternal life. And this should strengthen us as converts to the faith to persevere in the midst of difficulty of whatever sort God sends our way. The preposition here, in, in hope of eternal life, indicates that Paul's service and and, and purpose are aiming toward that ultimate hope of the gospel. You could almost say this is a, a another aspect of his of his purpose, but I've called it out as a as a next step, if you will, or the end point of it. Without hope like this, there's no purpose to the Christian faith. It crumbles and becomes useless. What does he mean the, in hope of eternal life? Hope that that confident anticipation of what we know will come to pass. It's not, I hope so, hope. It's, this is our certain expectation. Get that baked into your mind, this blessed hope that we have. In that hope and that assurance of eternal life, we move forward. If, if we didn't have that, then... Christianity would just be an earthly, man-made system of religion. It'd be worthless. But God takes us beyond the present life to an everlasting life. We confidently anticipate the fullness of life eternal because we know it is coming. How do we know that it's coming? Pause for a second. Just think about that. You have a hope of eternal life. Not of temporary life. Not of miserable life. Not of painful life. Not of sorrowful life, you have a hope of eternal, blessed existence with God, where God is your God, and you are his people, and you serve him, and he is with you, and you are with him. And all of the people of God before and after us, we will be with in that eternal and everlasting life. This earth is not all that is. This miserable perverse generation, did I say that? Yeah, I did, and I meant it too. This miserable, perverse generation is not all that is. We are going to live in an eternal future kingdom of God, which will be that described in Revelation 21 and 22. No sorrow, no pain, no crying, no departing from there. Just going to be wonderful. Think about that eternal hope. The most The best part of it is we're going to be with Christ, with God. We will see his glory, the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. He said in John 17, Lord, I want them to be with me where I am. You think that prayer is going to go unanswered? No, it's going to be answered, John 17, that high priestly prayer. We will be with him. Now, why can we be sure of this? Well, look at the rest of verse 2. This hope was promised by God before time began, this God who cannot lie. This is a great word. In hope of eternal life, which the unlying God promised before time began. Wow. The unfalse God promised in amongst the triune 
fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Could I say it in human terms? They figured out this plan that they were going to do. They chose how they were going to work out the history of the world that they were about to create, and then they went about doing it. And that God who before the foundation of the world promised us eternal life cannot lie. Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, that he should turn away from what he has intended to do. And by the way, not only does he not lie, he does not have any weakness that would prevent him from carrying out his plan that he has decided to do. So for God's truthfulness and God's infinite power, those two together are what guarantee us that this hope of eternal life is secure. Now I must move on to verse number three, Paul's commission. Paul's, really I could say his present commission. All this laid the groundwork for what Paul is doing now. And he says this in verse three, but has, now see, the connection between two and three is interesting to me because Paul's saying, God promised this before time began. But there's something that's happening right now that's bringing forward the before time began time. That wasn't really a time, but you know what I mean. That thing way back there, that's being carried forward into the present. He says, but has in due time, in, this, in its own day, man, he has manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. In contrast to the time of the promise, eternity past, now we have at just the right time, the when, God manifested his word, the what, through preaching the how. This preaching was especially entrusted to Paul as his ministry job description. And he was a commanded preacher, a preacher commanded by God for this work. God was using Paul as an important cog in the machine that takes, listen, I'm going to give you this sequence. It's right in the notes. The plan promised before time began. He delivers it through the means of a person preaching to people broadly, but especially to God's chosen ones. Number four, so that they would believe the good news. Number five, so that they would know the truth. Remember the acknowledgement of the truth? Number six, to the end that they would be godly people. And finally, number seven, that they would end up in that hope of eternal life. Paul is taking a message from eternity past, presently preaching it to people who are presently lost, to get them presently saved, to know the truth, to be godly, and to be propelled to that future hope of eternal glory. That is is his job. For parents, for pastors, for missionaries, for every Christian, we cannot say, I'm just going to sit here and wait for the elect to figure it out. That is wrong. Paul teaches us here the pattern. God brings people to faith and godliness through the agency of individuals who are a link in this chain like the Apostle Paul was a link We too are a link. You know that? You're a link in a chain. 
to bring the glorious gospel message from eternity past to someone's present day. You know you have that privilege? To take the promise that was made in eternity past and share that with some poor soul alive today and say, if you believe in the gospel of Christ, you will be saved. There's not much higher privilege than that, my friends, to take a message like that from eternity past and bring it into the present. In other words, Paul was called by God to preach, to bring about, number one, salvation, number two, sanctification, and number three, glorification. Salvation, that's to bring them to faith. Sanctification, to bring them to godliness. Okay, Glorification, to bring them into that eternal, everlasting hope. The Apostle Paul is laying out for us Christian doctrine here in verses 1 through 3, really, 1 through 4. And that's why I said we can't skip over these verses. We can't get to the real meat in verse 5 because the real meat starts in verse 1. This is powerful. And I think we can safely say that we're similarly commissioned to the Apostle Paul. He was given this assignment, so are we. We need to do business with that in our own hearts. That's all the from, from Paul, to Titus, verse number 4, the first part of that verse, 4a. Often in my notes, I'll have a 4a and a 4b, sometimes a 4c, and that'll tell you the different parts of the verse we're looking at. So 4a, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. That's it for a, the first half of the verse. Titus is called a true or genuine child. He's really a born-again believer. And of course, he has to be a born-again believer if he's going to lead churches like Paul is going to tell him to do and the churches in Crete, on the island of Crete, verse number 5, to appoint pastors and teach them sound doctrine and so forth. And I just kind of skip over any other details here and just ask you, are others so impacted by your testimony of Christ that they would say there is a true child of God? I, I, get, I get a little jumpy, I could say, maybe like uh, my, one of my teachers said, Dr. McCune would say it sometimes. You probably heard that before from your dad, brother. Uh, I get a little jumpy or a little anxious when people talk about others and they say, well, I'm not sure if they're a believer. I don't know. They really don't make a profession of faith, but I think they kind of believe. My friends, it should be said of us that we are true children of God in the faith of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about my own personal assurance. I have personal assurance of my own salvation. But the question is, do you have that assurance of my salvation? Or do I have that? Or do your neighbors and friends and family have that assurance about the true Christian people look at, that, at you and say, there's a true believer. No question about it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying about Titus here, to, my, to Titus, a true son. 
He has really latched onto this. He really believes. This isn't just a, a play thing for him. It's not just religiosity. It's not just churchianity. It's not just Christianity light. This is real for him. Real belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only that, but he, he's a true son in our common faith. Now, common is not common. What, is, what, what does that mean? Common does not mean widespread. Common means shared. This is the word koinos, or we get koinonia, or fellowship, like in the name of our church. It's the common faith that you and I share in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is common amongst us. But of course, it's uncommon when you go outside of the church. You don't find it as commonly as you would like to find it. So that's what he means by the common faith. And the faith refers to the body of Christian doctrine. Of course, we share personal faith in Christ. We, I have that, you have that, you have that. But really what he's talking about here is the common body of truth. We know when we're a true son in the faith that we have that personal faith, but here it's the body of truth. We share a special doctrine, a special kind of truth that the world does not know really anything about. Christians don't, true Christians, do not hold a huge wide variety of beliefs. There is a core doctrine that is true of all true Christians. Now, we, yes, we have our disagreements about this and that detail and this and that thing, but listen, if you believe that Christ Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died for sins, rose again from the dead, that you're a sinner, that you need that, You've entrusted yourself to him. You have become not just a, how can I say, a believer in the sense of, yeah, I believe that in the terms of the facts, but a committed person who has embraced that for yourself, recognizes your need for salvation, and begins then to walk with Christ. We all who have done that share a common truth among us. We share, we must do that. Paul's writing to Titus, a true son in the common faith. And he closes this portion of the letter with his greeting. Now, the greeting, uh, perhaps in your Bible, you have grace and peace. Am I right about that? In mine, I have grace, mercy, and peace. So what happened? Well, there are a number of greetings in the Bible where the words, three words are used. And uh, it's possible that scribes maybe have added that to what Paul wrote to Titus originally, or the majority of the Greek manuscripts do have all three words. So I've treated them all here just briefly uh, for you. It's not a, not a huge deal. Paul would certainly not say grace and peace to you, but no mercy, right? Yeah, he wouldn't be saying that. So grace is unmerited favor, not only the saving kind, but the sustaining kind. The transforming kind will learn in Titus, the grace of God teaches us what? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live godly, to adorn the doctrine of God. So the grace of God, saving, sustaining, service, sanctifying. Grace is that disposition of God that's totally unearned. It's free. It's not of works, Titus 3.5 tells us. Then there's mercy the kind compassion of God. When you've failed, 
when you have faltered, when you have sinned, remember the kind, tender mercy of God. He will receive penitent sinners. Yes, even if you have really royally messed it up. Amen. Peace. In the world, my friends, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Be in peace because Christ has overcome the world. A state of blessedness of the saved, a state of harmony with God, a state of harmony between believers, a state even of, 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 of an absence of conflict between you and all the circumstances that are around you, that you have this kind of peace that, well, passes understanding, right? We don't just need peace with God. We need that desperately. But we need peace, the peace that comes from God to deal with the anxiousness, with the the toils that we experience in this life. And I encourage you to appeal again to God for that peace. May you have peace. I often address you that way and, and, and wish the peace of God, the blessing of God upon you as you live for him. These gifts, notice, are from where? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Hosea 13 tells us there's no Savior besides God. Isaiah 43, there's no Savior beside God himself. So how is it that we can have God as Savior? Look at verse number, uh, where is it? Three, at the end of verse three, God our Savior, and then the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Well, you know. You know the doctrine of the Trinity. You know that Jesus, the name Jesus, means what? Jehovah saves. He is the salvation of God because he is equal with God. He is co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. He must be of equal deity with the Father. And for Rabbi Paul to say this, we've often said this before, Pharisee Paul, well instructed in the Old Testament law, for him to say that God is our Savior and the Lord Jesus is our Savior. In fact, elsewhere for him to say that Jesus is our God and Savior. Woo! That blows away most people who think in terms of a strict monotheistic religion. No, we have a Trinitarian monotheistic belief because that's what the Scripture teaches, especially in the New Testament, although it's alluded to in the Old Testament for sure. These things now, as we come to our conclusion of grace, mercy, and peace, ought to be reflected in our lives because we've received them from heaven. Now, Paul is a servant and an apostle whose goal, remember, is to see the elect come to faith and the knowledge of the truth, not just for the sake of knowledge of the truth, but that they would live godly in Christ Jesus. This is all founded on the eternal hope that God has promised, who cannot lie, made from eternity past, but manifested at just the right time through the vehicle of preaching. So to the Apostle Paul, he says, this preaching was entrusted to me according to the command of God our Savior. In fact, he said elsewhere, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Why? (laughs) Because when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, he said, that's what you're going to do, buddy, and don't argue. Okay, It's hard for you to kick against the pricks here. 
the goads. You're going to have to do what you're told to do. May we desire, my friends, to live with the same kind of purpose, to help people be saved, sanctified, and on their way to glory. And may we be those who can be called true sons of the faith, true children of God, according to the standard of the commonly received faith. We need to be sanctified. We need to move toward godliness. And as Paul wrote to Titus, I pray that God's grace and mercy and peace from him and from our Savior will be your portion henceforth and forevermore. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for these opening words of a special letter from Paul to a young man who is a minister serving Paul and helping in the churches early on in the life of the church altogether, the global church, we could say. God in heaven, I pray that you would help us to have the same kind of attention to the calling with which you've called us, to be concerned about bringing elect unknown to us, to faith, to knowing the truth, and to godliness. And perhaps, Lord, we pause and say, wait a minute, I myself need to move along that path of exercising faith in Christ, and I need to know a little bit more about the truth so that I can be more godly. Lord, we're all working in that project, but help us to be far enough along that we're useful to you in service and not stuck in a rut, not being useful to you in serving in this very important task of preaching the gospel today, which was promised millennia ago. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.